Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. It's where we're at this morning. We pick up in verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Again, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get a Bible into, into it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew writes, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So again, if you're new with us this morning, we welcome you. We're very happy that you're here worshiping the Lord with us this morning. We've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And our heart's desire here at Calvary Chapel Truckee is that God's word would wash over us. That it would just wash over us, that we would grow in the knowledge of God's grace and, and the knowledge of his love that he has for us, that we would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, that his word, God's word would fashion us into the people, you know, that he wants us to be, that his word would fashion us into the image of his son. And my prayer this morning is that we would have eyes to see that we would have ears to hear, that we would have hearts to receive whatever it is the Lord would wish to speak to us. And I believe the Lord wants to speak to each one of us individually this morning. Now, the portion of scripture that we're looking at this morning, Jesus has traveled into the area of Caesarea Philippi, right? He's traveled about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee from the area of Bethsaida, which is where we saw him last week. And in Jesus's day, Caesarea Philippi, it was a pagan city. It was the ancient site of worship for Baal, is the Canaanite, the false god of the Canaanites. And at this time when Jesus is speaking to his uh, disciples here at Caesarea Philippi, it was also the site of worship of the Greek god Pan. And Pan was that false god of nature. King Herod also built a, a temple here uh, to Augustus Caesar in Caesarea Philippi. And Augustus Caesar, his name literally means Caesar worthy of worship. In fact, he was known at this time as Divi Filius, son of God. That's how Caesar was known. And as a result of this, the Jews considered Caesarea Philippi the gates of hell. They considered it to be the gates of hell because of this very high concentration of paganism and idolatry 
that was practiced there. So this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, it occurs in pagan territory. Again, he's in pagan territory. They are literally surrounded with this great um, cross-section of things that people often worship even today before they come to a saving knowledge of the one true and living God. So it's, the, it's in this location, Caesarea Philippi, where paganism and false gods abound that Jesus poses two really great questions to his disciples. The first one is found in verse 13. Jesus asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, we need to understand, Jesus doesn't pose this question to the disciples because he's in the dark about it, right? He knew perfectly well who he was and what people thought about him. He wasn't coming to the disciples to have them clear things up for Jesus because he's been a little foggy about it. Jesus doesn't ask the disciples to enlighten him regarding this issue. Jesus knows exactly what people were saying. But he asked the question of the disciples in order to drive home a point to his disciples then and to his disciples today. Essentially, what Jesus is seeking to communicate to his disciples as they answer this question is, there are a lot of differing opinions out there regarding who and what I am. And, uh, you know, there are an awful lot of opinions out there about Jesus. And we come into those uh, uh, contact with those opinions uh, daily, it seems, right? Regarding who and what Jesus is. I mean, don't you see that there's a lot of questions, like a lot of different ideas. And I think it's interesting to notice that there's no shortage of opinions which the disciples were well aware of regarding Jesus because they don't even have to think about it for a minute before they start answering question, uh, Jesus' question. I mean, they started spouting off uh, who the people thought Jesus was as fast as Jesus could listen, right? They heard all the opinions and Jesus know, uh, knew it. Now, you want to notice the disciples' response here in verse 14. They say, some say John the Baptist, right? They see you, Jesus, as a great moral reformer, just like John the Baptist. The people have noticed your, your call to them to change their ways, your call to repentance, to repent of their sin and turn to God. And they said, also, some say you're Elijah. Some people see you primarily as a great miracle worker, that's the way the people saw Elijah of the Old Testament. They saw him as one who came on the scene and worked great miracles. And they continued, and others see you as Jeremiah. For those of us who know a little bit about the Old Testament, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He was an Old Testament prophet that had a great heart for God and a great heart for a great heart and compassion for God's people. And Jeremiah wept over the people because the judgment that came upon them. So the disciples were basically saying, Lord, 
there's a large group of people who see you as this wonderful example of love and compassion. And then the disciples continued saying, and there's still others that see you just as one of the prophets, just another one in a long line of prophets that God has sent to the nation of Israel, right? In other words, they think, the people think of you primarily as another great teacher, a great man that has come to instruct God's people about the things of God. And I, and I know, uh, I don't know how many of you that are here today would be willing to ask um, any group of people saying, please, tell me honestly, you know, what are people saying and thinking about me out there? You know, I mean, I would hesitate asking it. I'm sure you probably feel the same way as I do because I think it would be too discouraging to hear what people think about me, you know, what people are saying about me. I'd be willing to guess that, that um, again, that's the way you feel. But if we were to ask somebody, you know, or a group of people, hey, what are people saying about me out there? And they spoke of me in the company of these guys that the disciples mentioned, you know, I mean, wow. <laughs> I mean, I'd feel pretty good about myself. You know, I'd be pretty satisfied. I'd be fairly proud of myself that when people thought of me, they associated me with these guys, with this company of believers. And, and any person, you know, I, I think, myself included, might think to themselves, you know, after hearing the disciples uh, you know, recited a list of these men and, and associated with them, thinking, okay, then, you know, I mean, I'm surprised people see me like that, but, you know, I'm okay to be associated with the likes of, of a John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Uh, personally, I'd be happy to know that that's the way people thought of me. The, and and uh, these other guys came to mind when they thought of me. I would be satisfied. The only problem about these four opinions regarding Jesus is that his life and teaching doesn't allow for them. It doesn't allow for those opinions of him even today. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. He uh, used to be a professor at Cambridge University there in England. And at one point in his life, he was agnostic concerning uh, related to God and relating to Jesus. But over time, he became a Christian. And this is what he had to say regarding the various opinions people can have about Jesus. He wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And here's that really foolish thing they say about Jesus. He says, I am ready to, you know, this is what they say. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And C.S. Lewis uh, then said in response to that statement, he said, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord God. But you, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I mean, pretty powerful words, right? And Jesus' life and teaching, as C.S. Lewis recognized and others have popularized, is this great dilemma. Actually, it's a trilemma facing every single person. Jesus in his life allows uh, people to come to only one of three conclusions. And I know you've heard this. He is either the Christ, and therefore he's Lord, or he's either a con man, that makes him a liar of gargantuan proportions, or he's crazy, he's insane, which, you know, makes him a lunatic. For instance, if you take Jesus' declaration concerning him, which he made in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that's either a deliberate lie in which we should dismiss him as a con man, as a liar, or he actually thought it was true, but in reality it's not true. In that case, he would be completely crazy, totally insane, and uh, we should get some help for him. Or the final choice, final option is it is true in which case he would be the Christ. And the only reasonable response would be to receive him as our Lord and Savior. Being a good man, a good moral teacher, is not an option for the thinking person. So all this brings us to the second great question Jesus puts to his disciples. And that is found there in verse 15. But who do you say that I am? This is where Jesus gets a little personal. He moves from the opinions of man to who do you think I am? And Jesus asks his questions of his disciples because it's the single greatest question that every person will have to answer during the course of their lifetime. And Simon Peter's answer, I mean, boy, it's just so beautiful. It's just so wonderful. He says in verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When Peter answers Jesus, and he's answering for all the disciples here, actually, he declares three things to be true about Jesus. First, when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's declaring that you are the promised Messiah. You are the king of the Jews. Secondly, he declares Jesus to be the son of the living God. In declaring this, Peter is ascribing deity to Jesus, right? He's saying, you are God in human flesh. Not only are you the son of God, but you are God the son. And thirdly, Peter was also making a personal profession of faith in Jesus. Jesus is professing, uh, sorry, Peter is professing Jesus to be his Messiah, to be his Lord, to be his King and his Savior. Peter isn't just acknowledging some 
theological reality related to Jesus, he is declaring, this is what I believe. This is what we believe about you, Jesus. We are trusting in you for these things as they relate to our lives. And notice Jesus doesn't correct Peter saying, that's really nice of, of you thinking that of me, Pete, but, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're getting a little carried away here, you know? I mean, you're calling me Christ. You're calling me the Son of God. Peter, I mean, you need to get a grip. Come on, you know? I know you're prone to emotion, but you need to dial the caffeine back a little bit. That's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says, verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus doesn't chastise Peter for this statement. Jesus actually affirms Peter's declaration. Jesus actually goes beyond affirming Peter's answer. He actually tells Peter that he's blessed for holding this view of Jesus. And not only does Jesus accept and affirm Peter's answer, he tells Peter that's the view and position of heaven. That conclusion that you've come to regarding me, Peter, it didn't originate with you. It's a revelation directly from God the Father, which he's given to you. Jesus tells Peter, God the Father has given you his mind and his understanding concerning me. And Jesus tells Peter that he's correctly answered the single most important question that every person will have to deal with in life. And that is, who is Jesus? And who do you declare him to be? Now, when we read this account, we might think to ourselves, you know, I understand Jesus asking question number two. I understand that when he said, but who do you say that I am? And I think Jesus, uh, you know, I understand why Jesus would ask each of us personally, you know, who we think he is. I get that. But I don't understand why Jesus asked question number one. What are the opinions uh, you know, out there of me, you know? What are people saying of me? That question I don't fully understand. And the reason that question is confusing, what people uh, think of Jesus has absolutely no bearing at all on who he actually is. People's opinion of Jesus doesn't change anything. Not anything at all. It doesn't make a bit of difference what people think of him. Jesus is who he is and what he is, completely independent of anyone and everyone's opinion of him. He is who he is and what he is from all eternity past. And he will continue to be everything that he is on into eternity in the future. So why does Jesus ask that first question? Why does Jesus ask the disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, I think the reasons Jesus poses uh, that question are first, Jesus was essentially saying that the consequences to question number two 
are so great, we must not accept the conclusion of other people because so often they're wrong. Each of us have to come to our own conclusion regarding Jesus Christ. I cannot accept the conclusion of my mom or my dad, you know, my grandma, my grandpa. I cannot accept the conclusion of my aunts and uncles, of my anthropology professor, uh, the person down the street in my neighborhood, or even my best friend. Because the conclusions that people come to regarding Jesus are often very wrong. The stakes are too high. I have to come to my own personal conclusion. Secondly, in asking the first question, Jesus recognizes the fact that anyone who does come to the proper conclusion regarding him actually does it in a sea of conflicting opinions about him. Wrong opinions abound about him. And Jesus is very sympathetic to this. Just look at how many people claim to speak for God. People that speak conclusively and authoritatively today regarding God. And they do so with a very limited pool of knowledge about God and the Word of God, which is the Word of God is His revelation to us of Himself. They've never, many of them uh, that speak authoritative about Jesus Christ have never actually read the Bible. They've never actually read one of the Gospels uh, beginning to end. So when a person is trying to find out about Jesus, trying to seek the true meaning and purpose of life, Jesus recognizes that that person is attempting to do so in a vast sea of wrong conclusions about him. So Jesus is saying, there are a lot of opinions out there about me. I know that. There are a lot of opinions out there, aren't there? And we come into contact with those opinions every single day, don't we? Who do you believe concerning Jesus? Who can you listen to about Jesus that allows you to come to the proper conclusion about him? Well, I'll tell you who you can listen to. You can listen to Jesus. You can believe Jesus himself. That's the only safe ground. That's the only uh, ground to stand upon. And Jesus has made it very easy for every single person in the world to come to the right conclusion regarding him. Because he's given us the answer to the question. I don't know about you guys. Don't you like in school when um, the teacher gives you the answers to the test before you take the test? <laughs> it was a gift of God, I always thought. In verse 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's the right answer. I'm the Christ. I'm the son of the living God. And flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God, and He is worthy of our faith in Him. Well, thirdly, I also think Jesus is encouraging His disciples by asking this question, because not uh, only must we come to faith in Him in a sea of wrong opinions, but we must maintain our faith in Him in the midst of a lot of wrong and aberrant opinions of him in the world. So it's an encouragement to us. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family. Maybe you're the only Christian in your class. Maybe you're the only Christian on your job site or in your neighborhood. 
And there can be so many people saying so many wrong things about him. So many things that uh, you know aren't true regarding him, regarding what the Bible has to say about Jesus. There can be so many people speaking what seems to be authoritatively, and so many of them, and you hear it for so long that it, that it can cause doubt in you after a while. And the enemy will rise up and he'll whisper in your ear, how can so many people be wrong about this? You know? And you begin to think, yeah. I mean, really, I'm a nobody. So how, how is it that I can be right in the midst of all these other people? Well, Jesus would say to you when that happens, don't doubt Hold tight to Jesus' response to Peter here in our passage. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's not just, you know, the uh, conclusion of Peter. That's the settled fact in heaven. And your understanding of that fact is a result of a re revelation from God the Father from heaven. That's his view on who Jesus Christ is. I mean, just take a minute and think about Noah in the Old Testament. I mean, there's a guy who held the truth of God. He held it tight. In a sea of unbelief, only eight people survived, right? Only eight people out of the entire population of the world in the days of Noah held on to the truth of God. I just recently read, I mean, it's not in my notes, but I just this week read the population at the time of Noah was billions, potentially more than the population of the world right now. And only eight people were right. So don't be moved, right? Don't be moved by the opinions of men, regardless of who that man may be. Because you know what? Everyone else in the world can be wrong. If you hold to this view, you'll be on the right side. Don't give greater weight to the opinions of any man than you would give to the voice of God the Father and God the Son. Hold fast the word of God and stand upon it because that's the only safe and high ground. Well, I think people often wonder, how can so many people come up with so many conflicting and crazy opinions about who Jesus is. And I think one reason that people, you know, come to these incorrect, incomplete conclusions regarding Jesus, like in verse 14, is that they look at Jesus one-dimensionally. You know, there's a tendency to look at just one aspect of his life and his ministry instead of looking at the totality of his life and ministry. There's a tendency, I think, for us, instead of looking at all of his claims, you know, all of his teachings, you know, and that's what people do. That's the mistake that people make today. But there's this tendency we're very prone to notice in Jesus those characteristics in his life that are kind of present in our life. You know, it's kind of present in my life. You know, then we tend to elevate that side of Jesus and we begin to think of him almost exclusively in those terms. And it produces a one-sidedness in a person's view of him. For instance, 
the zealot. The person who's a naturally born zealot kind of person. You know, they'll tend to only notice and magnify how Jesus denounces sin in the scripture. You know, how he stands up to the scribes and the Pharisees and he calls them hypocrites, pronouncing woes upon them. And that's how they'll define Jesus. That's what they like about him. That's what they see in him. And that's the aspect of Jesus' life that they begin to magnify. And oftentimes, they do it to the neglect of everything else. Then you have that tender-hearted person who's on the complete other extreme of the spectrum. You know, they read the Gospels, you know, and all they tend to see is Jesus' great love. And they overlook everything else. They focus on his wonderful compassion and his tender care for people. And they'll read the Gospels over and over again and never notice a single condemnation uh, from Jesus' mouth. They'll never hear a single exhortation or rebuke. They'll never notice a single hard word that Jesus ever said. All they see in Jesus' life is this single great characteristic that they either have in common with him or they wish were, was in their life, that they would just be people of love. And then there are those people that are a little more academic than others. And so, you know, they don't care anything about Jesus' miracles, but, what they, what, but when they read the Sermon on the Mount, when they read the Olivet Discourse, I mean, they come alive. I mean, they just get lost in it and they see the depth of it and they're so impressed with the teaching of Jesus. They define Jesus accordingly. Because you know what? They're teachers at heart. They're learners at heart. And in their minds, Jesus is a great teacher. And they'll read the Bible over and over again and never, ever notice a single miracle that he ever did. And then you have those people who love miracles. And they'll read through the Gospels and that's all they'll see. They'll hardly ever notice that Jesus taught the people throughout his life and ministry here on earth, they'll, they'll know every one of Jesus' miracles inside and out. They can list them in order and tell you this and that, all the details about them, because they're drawn to the miracles. That's what they love, right? Those are the things that they'd do if they had the power to do it. Each person thinks of Jesus almost exclusively in the lens of the characteristics that are the greatest in their lives. And I think it's a tendency of people to just notice and then elevate those things they see in Jesus that, that we tend to have. That we, and, and when we do that, what we do is we create Jesus in our own image. You know what? We define him on the basis of the grid of self the grid of pride. You know what? That's the Jesus I like. That's the Jesus that's most like me. Once in a while, you run across a person and they're a perfectionist. They notice every wrong thing in life. They notice every wrong thing in everybody's life, including their own. And they live a very depressed Christian life. They live a life of uh, constant self-condemnation. You know? And, and they love the exhortations from the word of God. And as they read the gospels, that's all they see. And they'll read, you know, five, six, seven chapters of the Bible, 
you know. And if there happens to be a couple exhortations in those chapters, something to do, something to be, that's all they see in those chapters. And what they need to do is to read the Gospels as if they've never read it before. And as they read it, they need to skip over the exhortations. Of course, if the Holy Spirit is prompting them specifically to do something, they need to do it. But otherwise, they need to read the Gospels and take note of every promise, right? Every encouragement. The next time they need to read the Gospels, they need to focus on everything they don't usually notice. And when that person does that, it'll transform their life. And then on the other hand, you run across that person who's a pure libertine. I mean, God is all love. You know, he's all compassion. And they're out there engaged in every kind of sin in life, claiming to be a Christian. When they come to the Bible, all they see is grace. All they see is love. They have no fear of God. You know, they, they take no notice of a single warning found in the word of God. You know, they don't come to the word of God with any kind of sobriety. They don't take it very seriously. And what they need to do is to make an effort to notice every single warning when they're reading the Bible. They need to take note of every single exhortation in the New Testament. Because these tendencies are so strong in each one of us, we need to focus not on redefining an already defined Bible-defined Jesus. We need, and I'm going to repeat that again, we need to focus on not redefining the already Bible-defined Jesus. We have to receive him through his revelation instead of forcing him into the mold of our own likeness. And Jesus, he elaborates a little in, in terms of Peter's confession uh, concerning him in verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, and I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus promises to build his church on the confession of Peter, which he made in verse 16. There are those who believe that the rock that Jesus is referring to when he says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. There are those that believe that Jesus is refer, referring to Peter as the rock upon which he'll build his church. And if that's true, man, we're all in big trouble, you know? And I say it reverently, but Peter was a walking, talking problem waiting to happen. And you know what? I see a lot of me in Peter. I see a lot of Peter in me. But that interpretation that Peter's the rock upon uh, which Christ is going to build his church, it doesn't seem to fit the passage for several reasons. First, it would be mind-boggling that Jesus would say to any mere man, that he would build his church upon that person. The church is not made of brick and mortar. The church is not the building that we're meeting in here this morning. The church is every single Christian in the world. The church is every single person who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior 
all around the world, throughout the history of the world. Uh, that's the church. Peter being the rock upon which Jesus would build his church, it just doesn't fit with the understanding of the church that we, that we glean from Scripture. Secondly, it doesn't appear that the other apostles understood Jesus to say that he was going to build his church upon Peter. I mean, we're going to see more than once in upcoming scriptures, upcoming studies, and more so as we get closer to the cross, right? We're going to see the apostles fighting amongst themselves over who's going to be the greatest in Jesus' coming kingdom. James and John, they're going to go so far to bring their mom into the argument, right, in order to secure the two top seats in the coming kingdom. One on Jesus' right hand, on the other on his left. So clearly, as they're fighting for the best seats in the kingdom of God, the disciples did not understand Jesus to say that Peter has secured the top spot, much less that he would be the foundation upon which the church is built. Thirdly, Peter himself, God bless him, never spoke, never wrote of himself as the foundation of the church. Quite on the contrary, he wrote, uh, you know, more than once in his letters that Jesus was the chief cornerstone, that Jesus was the preeminent stone of the church. Fourth reason, if you're taking note, is the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, didn't understand that Peter would be the foundation upon which Jesus would build his church upon. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 3.11 saying, for no other foundation can anyone lay that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Just imagine you become a Christian and somewhere along the line, you know, someone tells you that you're the foundation of your life, the foundation of your eternity is built upon Peter. I mean, you'd say, you're kidding me, right? I mean, have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read about Peter and seen what he does? I mean, we are in trouble. Now, the Roman Catholic Church declares Peter to be the first pope and the foundation of the church based on this verse, right? One of the problems with that is in Vatican I, they establish what's known as the doctrine of the infallibility of the pope. Now, the infallibility of the pope does not mean that the Pope is sinless. A lot of Protestants make that mistake. That's how they understand it. But that's not what it means. The infallibility of the Pope is the idea that the Pope is infallible. He's incapable of error, of making error. When it comes to, he's, in, he's incapable of error when making a decision when it comes to spiritual things or of faith. So the problem that arises is when you turn to the Bible, we see Peter is very often very badly mistaken when it comes to spiritual things. You know, we're not going to get to it today, but if you look down at verse 23, you notice that Peter, uh, Jesus says to Peter shortly after the verses we're looking at, he says, but he, Jesus, Matthew 16, 23 turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. There's no infallibility of Peter here. He's 100% wrong in what he's just done. And that's rebuking Jesus when he said he was going to be going to the cross. Right? Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, he puts Moses and Elijah on the same uh, level as Jesus Christ. And he's rebuked by God the Father from heaven. Someone might say, being an alert student of the Bible, someone might say uh, those things happened actually before the church was born. Those things happened before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those things happened before uh, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, the problem with that is Peter fumbled very badly concerning spiritual things after Jesus' resurrection, even after being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So much so, he actually misrepresented the gospel. He misrepresented the Lord to the degree that Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2 that he had to rebuke Peter openly for his error. So Peter wasn't infallible, as some would have us believe. The fifth reason, and finally, I think it's important to realize, Jesus uses one Greek word for Peter's name, and then he uses a different Greek word for the rock that he's going to build his church upon. When Jesus calls Peter, Peter, he uses the Greek word petros, which means little rock, little stone. And that's what Peter was. He was a rock, but he was just a little rock. He's just a a little pebble, a little stone. But then Jesus, talking about uh, the rock he's going to build his church upon, he uses the Greek word petra, which is a, a, a massive rock, you know, a, a mountain-sized rock. And if you go to Caesarea Philippi today, right, you go there where Jesus said these things, what you'll see is this mountain of stone, just this massive solid stone mountain right there where all of these things took place. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you're a rock, Pete, but, you know, the confession you just made related to who I am, that's the great rock. That's the great rock, far greater than the rock that you are and that's the rock that I'm going to build my church upon. Peter's a good man. We love him. He's a great example to us. He's an inspiring apostle. But he's a little rock. He's just a little pebble, a little stone. Right? And the greater rock that Jesus is referring to here is the understanding of who Jesus actually is. The Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the confession that the church is going to be built upon. That's the confession that brings us into the church. That's the confession that brings us into the body of Christ. And now our lives are being built upon that recognition of who Jesus is. It's that great confession that Jesus builds his church upon, not the opinions of man, not the confession of him as a great miracle worker, as a great teacher, 
or as a great moral reformer or a great example of love and compassion. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one, the only one, who saves us from our sins. And he is fully deserving of our faith and our absolute surrender to him as our Lord and Savior. And Jesus is saying, that's the only sure place to entrust our lives to, to uh, and eternity to. Not on the opinions of men or on the ideas of men concerning Jesus. Notice too, Jesus also declared that the church and the individual Christian that holds this profession of him will be able to endure and prevail against every attack of Hades, every attack of hell. And Jesus' listeners in the day, his disciples, would understand Hades as a place of the dead, as a place of death. So Jesus is declaring that following his death on the cross, his burial, uh, after he dies, that death would not be able to hold him. He would be resurrected on the third day. And his victory over death, sin, and the devil has become our victory uh, as his people, as his church. All of us who, like Peter, hold to this confession, profess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that hold to that truth. Nothing that comes against Jesus' church, not hell, not death, not Satan, not anything, has a hope of overcoming his church or God's purposes for his church. And we are built upon the foundation that will always prevail. It will always hold and remain secure in whatever tack the devil wants to launch at us. How wonderful is that to know this morning as a child of God? How encouraging is that? You know, especially in light of this world that seems to be getting worse and worse as each day passes. Notice also the authority in verse 19 that Jesus gives to Peter, but he also gives it to every other Christian that has made this same profession. Jesus says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Keys represent authority, don't they? If you have the keys, you have the authority over the lock. You have the authority over the door. You have authority to grant access, and you have the authority to deny access. I have the keys to the building. If I don't want to let you in, I don't let you in. That's how, that's how difficult Bible study is, guys. You know what? It's not any harder than that. In these days when a man was wealthy enough to have servants, he would um, take his, his very most trustworthy servant and give him the keys of everything that he owned. And that servant would determine who would enter into the home of the master and who would de be denied entrance into the home of the master. So here, Peter is given the authority by the master of heaven to declare to all those who make this profession that he made about Jesus, that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, that they are now part of the kingdom of heaven, right? 
And then also, he's given Peter and the rest of us the authority to declare to those who reject this assessment of Jesus from the scriptures, when they say, no, you know, I don't see, see him as the Christ, as the Son of God or God the Son, but I'm willing to acknowledge him as, you know, a great teacher, a, a really good miracle worker, a, a great guy, you know. But that's about it. Certainly nothing more than that. To those people, Jesus gives the authority to Peter and to every other Christian that holds to the profession Peter made regarding Jesus, we have the authority to say, you do not have access to heaven. Access to heaven is based upon the understanding of who Jesus is. And then personally putting your faith in him. That's the Jesus that saved. Not a Jesus of your own making. Sometimes you see a cartoon, you know, as I was studying my notes, I was thinking, you know, sometimes you see a cartoon in the Sunday paper. And then I thought, wow, I wonder how many people here even remember a Sunday paper, much less a cartoon in the paper. So I didn't write it down. I'm not going to mention it. But sometimes you will see a cartoon someplace where a man dies, he goes to heaven, and there's Peter at the pearly gates. And, uh, you know, he's the one that holds the keys. He's got a big keychain there. And, uh, you know, he's holding the keys, and he makes a decision whether or not you're getting into heaven. It all comes from this passage, by the way, right? And it shows Peter is the one who makes the decision if you're going in. So, you know, it's like you got to smooth talk him a little bit. You know, you got to grease him up a little bit because he has the final authority to open the gates or to send you packing, right? So, you know, it's a complete misunderstanding of this verse. Peter has the authority based on a person's confession of Jesus Christ to confirm a person's access or deny a person's access to heaven. And it's an authority that every single one of us as believers in Jesus have. We see Peter exercising that authority. You know, at the day of Pentecost, he stood up and preached and 3,000 men got saved. And he said, because of your faith, you have access to heaven. And he encouraged them. And then again, we see it at Cornelius' house when the Holy Spirit fell on the people within the house, right? Peter said to them, because of your faith, now you have access to God. And again, that authority was not given to Peter alone. It's given to all those who place their faith in Christ, Jesus as your Savior. It's an authority that each one of us have. Each of us have the authority to tell another person this is the way of salvation, right? If you'll accept Jesus and who he is and place your faith in him as your Savior and Lord, then you too can have access to heaven. You will have access to God's home. But if you deny Jesus, if you refuse to accept Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God and God the Son, if you fail to place your faith in Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you fail to receive the free gift of salvation, then with all the authority of God, I'm telling you, you cannot be saved and you do not have access to heaven. We don't determine who's saved and who's not saved. You know, who has access, who does not have access. That's not what we determine. But we do have the authority to reassure 
people who ask Jesus to forgive them of their sins, who surrender their lives to him, that Christ has forgiven them. Based on the authority of the Bible, if you ask Christ into your heart and ask him to forgive your sins, your sins are forgiven, right? You are a part of the kingdom. And those who refuse Christ, we have authority to warn them and to let them know that they're in danger of the judgment that's coming. We don't determine who goes into heaven, who doesn't go in, but we can tell them what's required to go in and what will keep them out. Jesus gave this authority to the other disciples and those who follow him in John 20, verses 22 and 23. It says, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And, and that's where that authority comes. As you place your faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. That's where that authority comes from. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, then they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So that right belongs to Peter, but it's also given to the other disciples too. It belongs to us today also because we have the Holy Spirit residing in our heart. Every one of us as Christians use the keys of the kingdom when we share the truth of the gospel with our, our unsaved friends. We open the door and we invite them into the kingdom, right? Inviting them to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Inviting them to place their faith in him for the remission of their sins and pronouncing upon them the blessing that will be theirs if they do that. And, you know, we warn those who reject him as their Lord. So who do you say that Jesus is? That's the question that Jesus poses to every single person in this room and to everybody watching online. Who do you say that Jesus is? Every single person in this room and in the world has an opinion. The question then becomes, is it the right opinion of Jesus? Is it the right assessment of who he is? Do you consider him to be a great moral reformer? Do you believe him to be a great teacher? Do you, you know, see him as a great spiritual leader? The problem with all of those beliefs regarding Jesus is it's not enough to save you. It's not enough to gain access to heaven. It's not enough um, to provide you with the forgiveness of your sins. Those Jesuses, Jesus the great teacher, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the moral reformer, the Jesus that's the great example for all of us, none of those Jesuses can save anyone because those Jesuses don't exist in reality. They only exist in a person's mind. The Jesus that saves is the one who's revealed to us in the word of God. The one who is the Christ. The one who is the son of the living God. And God the son. The one who is worthy of our faith in him as our savior and redeemer. Trusting him for the forgiveness of our sins. Right? Salvation is found through acknowledging Jesus, for who he is, the promised Messiah, acknowledging him as Son of God and God the Son, by receiving him as my Savior, by believing that he died for my sins, by repenting of my sins and turning my life over to him, to use as he sees fit, right, by believing that he was dead, 
buried and resurrected the third day on the cross. That's the Jesus that saves. That's the only Jesus that can save. The rest of them are myths and fables. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you for your goodness, your grace. And Lord, those of us that are here this morning that believe in you, freely confess you are the Christ. You are the promised Messiah. You are God the Son. You are the Son of God. Lord, you are the only one that saves. And it's through your substitutionary uh, atonement, it's through your death upon the cross, taking my penalty, taking my sin, taking our penalty, taking our sin, bearing our sin there at the cross, taking the penalty that we deserved. You took it. You paid the price. You paid the debt that we owed. And you gave us your righteousness. Lord, that's what the Bible says. That's what we believe. Lord, and I just pray for anybody here, anybody watching online, that hasn't yet come to that point of confessing you that way. But I just pray you'd move in their heart now and they would pray and ask you to forgive them of their sins, to come into their life, that they would receive you, that they would confess you to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, that they would confess you as Lord. They would believe in their heart that you were raised from the dead and that they would believe you are the only way of salvation. And they would just pray and receive a free gift of salvation. Lord, anybody that would pray that, Lord, I pray you'd meet them and I pray you'd give them the assurance of salvation as they begin a life with you. And for the rest of us, Lord, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in the gift of salvation. We rejoice in your sacrifice. We give you praise and glory, Jesus, in your name.